0: Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, here we are, Easter Sunday. It's a little different than we've done it in the past, uh, but still a lot of excitement in the air. little excitement for myself because I found something neat around the house. Actually, Melissa found it for me. It's been in our house for a long time. It's been a telephone stand for us, but really we realized that it's a pulpit. And if I'm going to be recording messages from our house, then why not do it using the pulpit that we've had in our house for the last 15 years. So here I am this morning, I'm excited about this. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 16 on this high day of the church year, and the events of chapter 16 begin very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. And the events begin, we're told, when the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, along with every other Jew of their day, had just spent another Sabbath winding their daily lives down to a halt. What did that look like? Well, it meant no work. It meant no food preparation. It meant no traveling. No traveling, not even to a graveside. The origins of this come from Exodus, where God gave his people instructions on setting aside a day of the week for rest. You must observe my Sabbaths, we read. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Of all the Sabbaths since Moses first relayed these words to the Israelites in the wilderness, this must have been the most challenging. All these women wanted to do was to be where Jesus was, even if that place was a tomb. We now live in a world where many of us are learning what it's like to be forced to slow down, compelled to rest, commanded to stay home even. We're learning how hard it can be. But earlier in Mark's gospel, when Jesus himself was chided for breaking the Sabbath, he famously replied, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which is to say, rest is a gift, even when it's forced on us like it was on that day for Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. In Luke 23, verse 56, after Jesus' body was laid in the tomb, we read, They went home, these women, and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It was on the other side of what must have been the most despairing day of their lives that these devoted and dejected followers of Jesus received the gift of Sabbath rest. Christian's reflection on Holy Saturday, I want to just read an excerpt from it. She said that we stand here on Holy Saturday in that in-between, holding our faith like a thread, hoping against hope that Jesus' death has not been in vain, that while we see nothing but that's from the top side of the grave, something deep down is rumbling, something is shaking the ironclad black gates of hell from the inside out. Now, if these three women were hoping against hope, their actions sure didn't show it. A couple of clues here. First, they brought spices to anoint Jesus' body. That's not a very hopeful act. They expected him to be dead when they found him. And as they were walking, they were asking questions about who would remove the stone. They had no idea that someone would have already done this. They didn't expect Jesus to be standing out there waiting for him. They thought the stone's going to be over the grave. Hopefully someone will be able to help us. Now, it wasn't unreasonable to think that the stone would be rolled away. After all, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea rolled the stone over the entrance to the tomb himself. So their question had more to do with the likelihood of someone being there to help with the heavy lifting so early in the morning. In Mark 16, verse 4, we read, But then they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Problem solved. So they entered the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. But instead of finding the body of their Lord wrapped in linen, they found a young man in a white robe. Now, To help break through the familiarity of the story for those who have heard it before, I want you to just close your eyes and imagine with me that you walk downstairs first thing in the morning and you see a man in a white robe standing in your kitchen how are you going to respond now if that man is your spouse or your father maybe it's not that big of a deal but what if it's not what if it's someone you've never seen before how are you going to react or let's imagine that you get into your car and you adjust your rearview mirror and there he is the guy in the white robe sitting in the back seat or what if you're on one of your neighborhood walks getting some fresh air in this amazing spring weather we've been having and you see a man in a white robe walking down the street like all of these situations would be so awkward and uncomfortable, but no place that you can imagine finding a man in a white robe would be as bizarre as in a tomb. Mary, Mary, and Salome went to this tomb expecting to find a dead body, and instead they find a man sitting there. Don't be alarmed, he said, because of course they were alarmed to see him. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. Now, even more alarming to the women than the unexpected presence of this man in the tomb was the announcement that Jesus, who they did expect to see there, was not in fact there. Not only was Jesus not there, but the man tells the women to head home and tell the others, wait for it, that Jesus himself was planning to meet them in Galilee. Perhaps the only thing that is not surprising about this whole incident is what comes next. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, fear can be paralyzing, can it? It can stop us in our tracks. It can interrupt our plans, steal away our best intentions, and even threaten to wring the life right out of our hopes. But then Jesus had a thing for healing paralytics. Verse nine begins, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Now, I love, love, love the fact that it was someone whose life was previously a lost cause, who caught the first glimpse of Jesus in all his resurrection glory. It wasn't someone who had lived an exemplary life, not someone who is known for their holiness, not someone powerful or even all that influential, just Mary from the block, Mary, out of whom Jesus had driven seven demons. Mary, who recently fled trembling and bewildered from the empty tomb. Jesus had said earlier, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we have evidence of it in Mary. The first thing Jesus does after his resurrection is to entrust and to empower the local nobody, Mary, with the responsibility of spreading the news that he was alive. Frederick Buechner writes beautifully, through all our laboring, God also labors to deliver what is whole in us from what is broken, to deliver what is true in us from what is false. The story continues. She went and told those who had been with Jesus and who were mourning and weeping when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they rejoiced and praised God for fulfilling his word and they all lived happily ever after. No, actually, that's not how they responded at all. She went and told those who had been with Jesus and were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them, they did not believe it. Talk about a disappointing reaction. I mean, this is the best news that Mary has ever heard and that she ever will hear. Imagine, if you will, you get a promotion at work and you show up home at the end of the day and you're so excited to tell your family and you say, I got a promotion. And your spouse says, I don't believe it. Like what kind of a reaction would that be? Or imagine you show up home to your buddy's place and and you're so excited, grin ear to ear. You say, I proposed. And she said, yes. And he looks at you and says, "Eh, I don't believe it. Like what kind of a friend would that be? Or you share the good news that you just got from lab results, the tests, they came back clear. Imagine if someone said to you, I don't believe it. Like, how discouraging would that be? This is good news. All of these things are good news. Mary's news was the greatest of all. Jesus is alive. But the response? We don't believe it. Now, as if fleeing the scene of Jesus' arrest, and later denying that they even knew him wasn't enough, we can add to the disciples' string of letdowns a failure to believe the very thing Jesus had been telling them would happen all along. You see, these events are happening on a Sunday. And so as recently as Thursday night, when they shared a final meal together, Jesus told them, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But we're still not finished. Later that day, Jesus appeared to a couple of disciples outside the city on the road to Emmaus. And as Mark tells us, the two of them returned and reported it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Seriously, this is what the Bible says. Nobody believed anyone when they shared the news that they'd seen Jesus alive. So the next time that you find yourself struggling with doubt, which honestly might even be right now as you're listening to this sermon, go ahead and remind yourself that Jesus' closest friends and followers spent the very first Easter Sunday denying that he was alive. Because there's good news hidden even under the dark cloak of our doubts. Jamie Smith makes this brilliant observation. He says almost as soon as unbelief becomes an option, unbelievers begin to have doubts, which is to say they begin to wonder if there isn't something more. The disciples, like all of us most days, were what we might call doubting believers. I'm not sure I can believe this, but I'm not sure I can't believe it either. After all, like the quote I read earlier from Kristen's Saturday reflection on that very first Easter Sunday, something was shaking the ironclad black gates of hell. Marilyn Robinson in her novel, Lila, writes about the seemingly random date chosen to celebrate Christ's birth. She says it's true. No one really knows anything about when Jesus was born, the time of year but there's just a certain amount of exuberance that people have to burn off now and then, Christians and pagans. Spring would seem like a better time to celebrate a birth, but it's even better for resurrection, everything coming back to life. Mark 16, verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. The Easter story begins with fear. It moves through doubt. But it ends with celebration. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to all creation. Like I said before, I love that Jesus chose Mary as the first witness to the resurrection. And I also love that immediately after giving his disciples a tongue lashing for their lack of faith, he sends them out with the task of spreading the good news. There's nothing in between those two. Verse 14, tongue lashing. Verse 15, the task of spreading the good news. So what is this good news? N.T. Wright defines it this way, at least in part. The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now we're going to get into this more next week, unpacking the question, now what? But for now, at least part of what it means to say that God has taken charge of the world is that people like Mary and people like the disciples and people like you and I have been invited to carry the good news with us wherever we go and to anyone who will for even one moment lend an ear. You have fears, bring them along. You have doubts, bring them along. Disillusionment, disappointment, sorrow, regret, confusion, failure, bad habits, anxiety, loneliness, bring all of it along and let God breathe some healthy resurrection life into your lungs this spring. I'll close with this image that my sister-in-law, Carolina in Bolivia, sent to me. Um, The image is of the, the Cristo, which is this giant statue of Jesus in their city with a helicopter flying over it. And the caption she sent said, So you know you are in Bolivia when a priest rides a helicopter and sprays holy water over the city. I messaged her right back, I'm like, is this a meme or is this for real? And she assured me that this is for real. This actually happened in their city. Now our world needs a good dose of holy water, doesn't it? It needs a good dose of something good, at least. The passage that we heard this morning ends with news that the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now even if we exactly can't go out these days we can celebrate Jesus' resurrection with joy in our homes and let that joy seep out through the cracks into our extended families, neighborhoods, social networks, and a whole world in desperate need of some good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. God, I'm grateful that we can gather like this as a community. I'm grateful for this day, the best day of the year. And even though we may not be celebrating it the way we would choose to, we are still celebrating that you are alive, that you have conquered death, and that you have paved a way for us to live eternal life. God, we are grateful and we give you thanks. I pray that you would allow this joy to bubble up in us today and that it would overflow into the world around us. Remind us of the hope that is found in you because you are risen. With thanks we pray in Christ's name. Amen.